Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Balaji, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. Great to be here. Yeah, we were reminiscing off air about the first event where we met each other, and uh, that was quite a few years ago. And 2019, I think? That would be about right, yeah. So I've been following you from a distance for a long time since, and um, personally, your career, you've done really well and continued and remained at Vanguard and um, have a lot of responsibility now. So the way you communicate I find is something that's very refreshing and unique in our industry because you can talk to anyone, basically, whether they're institutional style investors or someone who's just getting started, you can articulate the same messages in really interesting ways. So this conversation, we're going to focus on Vanguard, we're going to focus on index investing, uh, all of the usual things, but we might go a bit deeper in some places where they probably we probably haven't been before in terms of the nuances behind index investing about portfolios the ecosystem in Australia, et cetera. But maybe just to get straight into it, over the past 30 years, 50 years, the Vanguard Interactive Charts go back to January 1970, and you can study the performance of different asset classes over the long run. Index investing, um, having a, an ETF more recently, but index funds before that have performed exceptionally well over a long period of time. I'm curious, now that we have interest rates all of a sudden have become a conversation once again, how do you think about that going forward? About indexing? About indexing, about the performance of indexing um, with maybe higher rates or rising rates. A good way to think about the rise of indexing is to try and understand why there has been this rise in indexing. And as you said, it took shape about 30 or 40 years ago. And in Australia, we started to see a steep uptake in 2013 driven by the um, future of financial advice reforms with financial advisors mm. moving more, moving away from product offerings to thinking more in a holistic portfolio conversation sense and being more attuned to low cost. I feel the biggest drivers of indexing both in Australia and globally have been um, driven by the need for simplicity, need for access, and um, and fundamentally about low cost. And indexing encapsulates these things really well. And investors worldwide have woken up to the fact that, hey, um, not all of my money that I could be paying to a, a big superstar fund manager who's picking certain stocks is really being put to good use, i.e. many active manager portfolio performances are not meeting just a core benchmark. So the rationale then becomes, is there a way to invest directly into the benchmark? And that's indexing is a great way to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, when you overlay that with the advent of ETFs or exchange-traded funds, which mm -hmm. are listed vehicles on, on the stock exchange, you're essentially able to buy a large portfolio of stocks through just a single ETF trade, just like you would buy a BHP or a Rio share. So to answer your question, um, this the propensity for low costs, the propensity for simplicity, the propensity for access is not going away. 
And indexing, despite its rise in Australia, is only still about 20% of the market. So it has a mm. long way to go. And we think the drivers of indexing um, will continue to stay. So we're really, um, we, we think indexing has a, has a long way to go. And uh, mm. now there's increased adoption from retail investors who, who are engaged and more participative in the industry than they ever have been before. Yeah, because those barriers to entry have come way down. And like you said, it's easier to understand, easier to transact, so on and so forth. How about then in terms of, say, the performance of, we don't have to just look at it through the lens of the Australian share market, but it could be, if we do take equities, generally speaking, performance-wise, we've seen falling rates um, and a lot of people question not necessarily how much growth comes from just falling interest rates, lifting valuations, and those types of things, but can indexing still be, uh, you know, a valid strategy? And can it can these portfolios still grow, even if the macroeconomic factor of falling rates and globalization aren't really there? If you understand what I'm saying. And Owen, um, these type of interest rates, inflation, or geopolitical events, there's always something happening around the mm. world. We get asked a lot of questions about what is the one asset class to invest in. Mm. And people often assume that indexing is just for equities. Indexing is also, there's a huge um, indexing world for bonds or fixed income instruments where indexing, again, is able to wrap tens of thousands of securities in the one um, product. So from our standpoint, we think market events will always continue. Our view is, um, and in, in somewhat boring way, our advice to investors is, Focus on what you can control. Focus on keeping things simple. Focus on defining your goals. Focus on being diversified. And uh, we we encourage investors to have uh, a really good think about the asset class mix that they're investing in, which comprises equities, which which bonds and cash. And w- we find investors who are diversified, and this is whether you're a super sophisticated investor or someone who's starting out, that diversification really brings home the benefits of being able to participate in markets and reap the rewards at the the end. Now, Vanguard publishes uh, an index chart every year that you may be across. Mm. Um, We look at these um, every year, the winning asset class um, changes. Say, for example, last year, cash was by far the biggest um, the asset class that generated the most return. And it didn't generate too much because it's because every other asset class fell away. But in 2023, so far it's US equities. And maybe next year it'll be something else. But you, we find even professional investors can't predict which market is going to do what in, in with any degree of certainty. So our view of the world is diversification is your next best way to be able to participate in each of these asset classes, stay diversified, and that usually puts people and um, in investors in good stead over the long term. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that, that uh, obviously the long-term focus and always the long-term focus, right? And that's it's close to my heart too, of course. Um, and what I've found, uh, I tried to get to the bottom of this, you know, through like factor analysis and these types of things over time. And obviously we do there is an influence from interest rates because it affects like the risk-free rate that you get uh, when you do valuations on the stock market or what the return, the implied return could be. Uh, but also the big overwhelming driver of returns seems to be profitability of companies, the earnings per share growth, the, over the long term, the ability of companies to keep innovating and keep growing. And like you said, by having the exposure to in the broad index, you're getting all different types of companies that are for profit and focusing on those types of things. Absolutely, and and we also find investors who think, hey, in an upwards interest rate environment, maybe parking my money in cash feels really safe. I was getting nothing maybe one or two years ago, and now mm. I'm getting maybe three, four, five percent, and is that safe? But cash is not a risk-free asset. Mm. It's, uh, I mean, you'll, get, you'll be able to get access to it. And if people need money for their liquidity, and we think that's really important that you should be able to access it, and money in the bank makes a ton of sense. But cash returns, inflation over the long term erodes the value of money that is not working for you. Mm. So just last year, or inflation is what now? About six odd percent, and you're getting about five percent. So you're not your, your money is not keeping pace with inflation. We think all investing should be for the long term. Mm. And investing is 
fundamentally about protecting the purchasing power of your money, which is, you know, if you want your money in 20 years' time, can it? Can you still have the lifestyle? Can it still buy you the basket of goods that you are able to buy today? And being invested in financial markets and equity markets in a diversified bond market really puts you in the best stead to be able to make sure that your money is keeping pace with inflation over the long term. Mm. It's definitely more like a, a marathon than a sprint, right? And we come back to those fundamental points of like protecting wealth is in effect growing wealth. Totally. Yeah. I know you're uh, interested in the whole marathon thing, um, or at least someone at home might be interested in long distance running. My wife has um, signed up to do an ultra marathon next month. So that's 100K. So uh, yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm uh, literally and figuratively always chasing her in, <laughs> in, in, in my running pursuits. That's great. Uh, it's good. It's a good habit. It's a good thing to do, uh, keeping fit and healthy, of but, course. But it's, it is a great analogy. It's mm. just um, the marathon is, is a good good analogy because you will always experience ups and downs, but having that long-term perspective, having that discipline really puts you um, puts you in the best head to um, get your outcomes. I don't think I'll ever run 100 kilometers, but I have run a marathon before. And people always think, how did you, how did you do that? And it's literally like one foot in front of the other. And it sounds so silly to say, but it actually is just the repetition of the steps, and that's what you've got to do. Absolutely, and to and to maintain perspective even when things get really difficult, mm. which typically happens. At, you'll notice at the 34, 35 kilometer mark when you want to give up yep. and make silly decisions, and that's when you you want to remind yourself of, hey, why did you sign up to this in the first place and keep going? Yeah, it actually was the 30. It was right on the 34 kilometer mark, my first marathon. That my calf just basically gave up and I didn't know what to do, but I had to walk and that was okay. I just kept creeping towards the finish line. Um, so one thing that's happened, you mentioned 20% before for the Australian market. And if I'm not mistaken, in the United States, index investing is a bigger proportion of the industry overall. People are concerned that index investing is a massive driver of performance in, or in market crises. Like if I think Michael Burry, the famous investor, had something like all those people trying to fit through the same size door at the same time or something like this. I can't remember the exact quote. And then we've had many different variations of that over many years and probably from the same people. Um, but there's this kind of belief, Blagy, that Vanguard and the competitors have such a big slice of the pie now. Does that create issues with things like corporate governance? Does it create issues with who's actually you know, watching over these things? Is there an ETF bubble? That's one. Is there an index bubble? There's another one. Like all these big picture problems that people can't really identify the solution for. Can you maybe talk to that for a little, little while? Sure. Um, this is obviously and unsurprisingly something we think about um, a lot. Mm. Um, we manage money globally on behalf of 50 million people. So when Vanguard is a is a big investor or a steward, we we're always remind ourselves that we are managing that, or we hold that money on behalf of 50 million investors worldwide. So um, that is an important, so there is no external shareholder to Vanguard who's mm. trying to run some material things with certain companies. That's so, so important because I was at the barbers the other day and this is where the genesis of this question comes from. I was sitting next to someone, they were getting their hair cut and they're like, yeah, Vanguard and those, you know, those other guys, they control this much, I don't know what's going on, have you ever heard of Vanguard? Um, and that's, that's, that's a, I was just thinking in my head, the finance guy, I'm sitting over here going nuts because I'm saying, it's not Vanguard's money. <laughs> yeah. It's pension funds. It's probably your superannuation fund, buddy. It, yeah, and, and, we, and we hold it on behalf of um, uh, our, our investor base. And coming down to the indexing question, if you really break it down, the question then becomes one of price discovery. And the notion there is, Hey, if if a Vanguard or another index um, manager is just buying certain stocks in big quantities, then the price of that stock invariably goes up, mm. and then you're artificially inflating the market. And that is a theory that plays out. It's really important to understand how price setting happens, and it's important to understand how the industry works. Like indexing, despite its growth, as we discussed before, it's only twenty percent of the market. 80% of the market is still comprised of active managers or individual stock pickers who are doing that, mm. who are ascribing some sense of value to that. 
if 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 that price discovery if if that price discovery wasn't in check, then with 20, 30 years of indexing, you you would have expected BHP or Rio to just the price would have been in the mm. tens of thousands. But that hasn't happened because what happens is when index managers buy, it becomes a big part of the index. But you also have a huge community of active managers who are looking at it on a valuation basis. And if the valuation goes up, then this stock signals an overvalued, which means invariably you have mm. a big chunk of the market selling down those holdings. So from our standpoint, indexing is a great way to be able to participate in a market and like you said earlier, be able to participate in the profitability story of a stock over the long run. Um, but we feel that the market dynamics play out in such a way that the price discovery um, is continues to be fair and reasonable over the long period. And we do want mm. the stock prices in aggregate to continue to rise over the long term. But what we don't want is to see huge spikes just because of indexing and people automatically assume that's what happens, but it doesn't. But the active manager, mm. active managers weigh in more on a scale of almost five to one in terms of setting the price of the underlying stocks. And this is, this is the same for uh, equities as well as bonds. And when I say active managers, it could be traders and it's there's market makers who are constantly watching the price to make sure that the price in check. So on that basis, we're comfortable. We think indexing still has a long way to go, but price discovery from our standpoint is not an issue. The other thing that you said before was that, again, I'll come back to the 20% with the indexing in Australia, potentially higher overseas. You mentioned price discovery, effectively the, the price of shares, the price of bonds and what they're traded for uh, on exchange is really important. And that can be facilitated through index funds, but it can all, it's predominantly based on trading activity, active investing. Now, people look at the writing on the wall for index investing over a long period of time and they say, well, I'm going to allocate so much more of my money to index investing going forward. And it's reasonable too. Like in our community, we say like the majority of your portfolio should just be exposed to markets when what that means for most people is the majority is just index investing. So what happens or is there a point where it gets too much, if that makes sense. Like, is there a point where too much indexing is too much, if that makes sense? We hear some of these perspectives. I mean, indexing has been in vogue for a few decades now, and we haven't reached that point and nowhere near that point. Um, the active industry is, um, by virtue of pass indexing growing, the active industry is also getting a bit more selective in terms of there's a number of mediocre ad, um, active managers have have left the industry, which means the mm. the better ones have continued to thrive um, in in the market. And we we do think that active investing will continue. And um, and so long as there are managers who have the right talent, they will continue to be there. So which we we think this price discovery phenomenon that has played out will will continue to play out in in the future, even with more money going into indexing, there is going to be the community of traders and active managers who will, these are firms and entities who are either mm. in market today or there will be newer entrants coming in. And that um, that price discovery will adjust over time. So we don't we don't sense that as a, as a very large um, risk. There's a follow-on question to this, which is that, and it's something that I've, I remember when I first ever met with Vanguard, which would have been oh, many, many years ago, even long before we met, um, this idea of like index indexing, they take the Vanguard Australian shares fund, right? Just in the ETF alone, there's billions of dollars. And so what some investors might think is, well, if there's a, and that tracks the ASX 300, the S&P ASX 300 index. So I mean, the top 300 largest companies or thereabouts. Now, the 301st company may become the 300th in the next week and be added to the index, in which case you would be obliged to buy that uh, and add it to the portfolio. Now, some people think, well, maybe there's an opportunity here where I can get in front of this and I can predict that the index funds are going to buy this. Um, and this is probably a question you get a lot. Behind the scenes, you guys are obviously managing this day to day, every single day, probably every minute of every day, someone is looking at this, there are systems in place in terms of risk management. 
How do you think about that? Like, what does Vanguard do necessarily to neutralize that impact? If there's like a corporate action, someone comes out, someone goes in, etc. How is it actually managed? Yeah, this is um, this is why it's really really important. Where indexing is a very simple concept to understand. You're buying a basket of shares, but in practice, the portfolio management of it, getting the portfolio to track. Um, the index mm. is is really critical. It's really difficult, and it's really it's it's really critical because when the S and P's of the world they construct the index, they, it's a basket of stock. It doesn't take into account the operational or the portfolio complexities of you mm. know any tax consequences, any trading costs, and things like that. So this is why having a a large scale investment manager who knows this is who knows how to do this is really critical, and whether that be a new stock coming in or coming out of an index or a large-scale corporate corporate action. We also, um, so coming coming down to the, um, we call these rebalancing events. Let's mm-hmm. talk about uh, either a stock coming in or coming out of an index. These are rebalancing trades or rebals, as we mm-hmm. call them. Um, so this could mean, say, that in your example, the 301st company is coming in and the 287th company, for whatever reason, is coming out. So these kind of um, changes happen roughly once a quarter. Um, and, the, and the team then um, looks at how do you manage this really effectively. And they also like to, they're very conscious of the index effect. And the index effect is sometimes when a company is coming into the index and there's going to be a lot of people buying into that stock, and the stock, you know, might go up. Mm. It's um, a nice parallel to that. Is um, imagine Valentine's Day. Um, on Valentine's Day, the prices of a, a rose or, a, <laughs> or or anything you buy in a florist just tends to go through the roof. But it's probably at a at a, at a price equilibrium the day before, and maybe the day after Valentine's Day. But on Valentine's Day, the price might go through the roof because newer investors are coming mm. in. So from our standpoint. We we have a number of measures to ensure that we have that price equal. We maintain that price equilibrium, despite allocating, in, in in many cases, billions of dollars into the market, into you know taking money out of stock A and then putting it into stock B, and then how do you maintain an equilibrium position without moving the markets? And the portfolio team employs a number of different strategies in terms of how that is affected. And that is why you know, having a, an experienced team with the right operational infrastructure, the right technology infrastructure is really critical. And then the same with um, large corporate actions. And um, you start to see the, the impact of the portfolio management alpha over the long run by having the benefit of an experienced team who's doing this. Mm. Because what you don't want to see is big swings in portfolio performance um, correction that mm. an investor is ultimately having to pay for. So from our standpoint, we take that investor proposition very seriously. So it's well reflected in how we undertake our investment management processes. This is uh, this is something that's you know we talk about a lot, and um, a lot of people just think it's as simple as one comes in, one goes out. But obviously, the team behind the scenes has to be thinking about this days or weeks in advance and they would know what's happening and what's expected to happen and they would put in place measures for this. And like you said, it, in liquid markets, like say shares in yeah. this example, that's really easy to assess. Well, not easy, but it's like you can assess what might happen. And yeah. We've seen, and I, I, I won't say the name, but we've, we've seen with other products, particularly ETFs, where there's another layer of liquidity that goes on screen and what have you. Uh, during times of market crisis, you see some of those less liquid investments. So maybe they're not so much shares. Maybe they're like some type of bonds or some weird type of bond that's less liquid. During market crisis, you, it's not necessarily the index provider, but maybe the ETF manager and the market makers. There's a bit of friction there, and you see like the dislodgement from the true value of what's inside the portfolio and the share price on the screen. And uh, so this is where it gets quite complicated, right? And like you said, you need these risk management processes in place and you need the experienced teams to do that. And if anyone's a bit lost right now, the easiest way to keep track of this is to look at something called the tracking error uh, for an index manager. And it shows you effectively how well an index manager replicates what's actually inside the index. A- absolutely. And and um, for some of your viewers, uh, the tracking error, 
the easiest way to describe it is we call this concept of excess return, which is the return either over the benchmark or you know if you're if you're trailing behind the benchmark, it's um, it's the opposite of the excess error. Yeah. But the tracking error is measuring the variability of it, and ideally you want to keep that tracking error very very tight. Mm. And um, and for us, we generally tend to operate in large um, liquid markets where there is a sufficient pool of liquidity because when that dries up, then investors are having to pay for it through huge yeah. spreads in cost. Yeah. Um, I, I remember coming across this concept many years ago and how important it was. Um, and this actually leads into a different conversation, which is that in Australia, and I'm getting a lot of questions about this, our whole team is getting a lot of questions about this, the idea that there are ways that an index manager can actually improve the return or at least adjust the return for the benefit of investors. And this is something that's maybe a bit of, there are many different, I'm sure there are many different herbs and spices that go into the secret sauce at Vanguard, but maybe this is one of those areas that people aren't as familiar with, but I've seen it cropping up a lot online lately, which is this idea of being able to lend stock against the existing portfolio in a prudent way and use that benefit for shareholders and for the group overall. Um, it's a bit more technical, but ha- can you maybe just frame that in any way that you like around how that's done and what actually happens? Yeah, it's uh, it's called securities lending or stock lending. Um, a number of the large super funds do it as well. Essentially, when, when you have access to billions and billions of dollars worth of um, stock, there are actors in the marketplace. Um, there could be large banks or different fund managers or asset managers who might want access to certain stock for either them managing their own investment strategy or to manage their own liquidity. Um, typically, that's the way that plays out is an asset manager like a Vanguard is lending out a portion of your stock to some of these players through an intermediary, like which is typically your custodian, like yep. a JP Morgan or an HSBC. Yep. Um, this money then gets invested in a pool, in, in some conservative investments or something else, and then that generates a return. So we 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 believe in securities lending, both in, in Australia and um, and globally. We think it is um, it is a great mechanism by which investors are able to attract um, added returns to their stock portfolio over and above what they get by participating in the market, mm. uh, in, in the financial markets. Um, our view is you know, where that collateral is invested and how it's invested is really, really important. We, we don't take any undue risks there. It's invested in a very conservative way. We have large teams both he- uh, here and in the US ad- who administer that program. And it generally adds up to to, to a decent amount of return in the portfolio over and above what you're getting from the marketplace. So mm. a combination of excellent risk management processes, portfolio management processes, and stock lending does add to the overall value of a fund or an ETF that an investor is investing in. So we don't do it for all funds, but we do it for um, we do it for some of some funds, and um, you know I think our most importantly our investors have benefited in um, in in a decent way mm. for the long run since when it's been in operation. Yeah, because this this is something that also is probably news to like most people that listen to this, but when I first discovered that it's actually possible for index funds to have a return above the benchmark that they track, I was amazed at that. I didn't actually think that that would be possible because I always thought it was just the index minus the costs equals the return almost mm-hmm. all the time. But there's actually moments in time where it can exceed that. Yes. And I, a lot of people don't know that. And I think that's like a really interesting thing. And because of the way the Vanguard organization is set up, that benefits the end investors, um, whereas in maybe other institutions, it maybe doesn't benefit them in the same way. Absolutely. So maybe that's actually a great segue. We're, we're here recording in the HR room, I think it was on the door on the way in. <laughs> so um, this is... Um, <laughs> this is the this is the intimate room, Balaji, where uh, I've got bad news for you. No, uh, just kidding. Um, but Vanguard overall, right? Like people in the industry and investors trust Vanguard. Like it's probably, I would have to say it's one of the most trusted brands in the world. Thank you. That just doesn't happen, right? So I'm curious, like here in the building, behind the scenes, um, 
how how would you describe things like the culture and the attitude towards what people do every day? Yeah, um, I had a, I had a different perspective. Um, I came into Vanguard as a large institutional client. This is about six and a half years ago. Uh, I used to work at one of the big banks and we did a strategic partnership with Vanguard to manage large institutional pools of capital. And we've since walked away from the institutional mm. business. So that gave me some really great insights into how Vanguard truly operates. Um, it's, a, it's a very client-focused company. Culture and leadership are are very much at the forefront of what we do. It is unashamedly uh, investor-centric. And I'll talk about what that means and how mm. it's reflected. You see that play, it's highly principled as well, sir, and you see this coming out in all of the discussions. So when we launch products, for example, we have these really well-stated product design principles where we want all our products to to be able to have an enduring investment merit, we need them to generate a real return over time. So, i.e., keeping it, yeah. you know, generating a return over inflation over time. We need it to be. We we want to answer the question of: Is it um, is an investor going to use it appropriately? Is it can it be world class? Is anything going to get in our way to us making this product world class in our mind? That is, it is meeting investor outcomes as well as we can continue to lower the cost of investing over its lifetime. So we have these tests in mind and we are really principled, which means it takes us away from jumping into the shorter term fads. And as much as there is ridiculous investor demand for certain things, we we are highly principled in going back to these, hey, how is this going to benefit an investor? We have a global investment committee um, that looks at every product that we offer. Um, Vanguard is touted externally in terms of the assets that we manage, mm. but internally we almost never talk about the AUM footprint. It just it's we we talk about it where relevant, but it's not something we we just walk around talking about all day because from a from a Vanguard standpoint, our global CEO is just as in interested in an Australian equity product as much as we have. I think it's called um, the total market. Um, fund in the US, which has got more than a trillion dollars in just the one fund. So we don't distinguish our principles based on assets, or we don't um, distinguish our principles based on um, a particular client type that we might be trying to attract. It's uh, it's our principles, our principles, and it's very mission-driven to take a stand for all investors to give, and to give them the best chance of investment success. So that plays out in all of the decisions we make. And and leadership and culture is very much a big part of that. Even, even with people like me who run business lines, one of the outside of business outcomes, the the only way I'm my success is measured is based on how I'm leading people, what is the leadership culture I'm creating. And that's no different to other leaders in the firm. And that's taken very, very seriously. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a great place, and um, and the things that we we get right, we we have the really right level of focus on it. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I I remember seeing an interview with Oprah Winfrey of all people to bring into the conversation about investing, um, and she basically had this pro this belief that like anything that you do from here on out has to improve your brand. So every single thing, and a lot of people don't take that approach, and we see that in the industry as well. Uh, because any one of those extra things can severely damage the brand. It becomes asymmetric, right? The more powerful your brand mm. and the more variability in the brand outcomes, um, the more likely it is that you would have something hit that brand and it would be massive impact. Um, interestingly enough, another thing about the brand is people think it's synonymous with purely index or passive. We'll say passive investing. That's the frame. Passive investing. But then if I was to talk to you, you would say that there are some active strategies that Vanguard has as well. And that might be something that, again, catches people off guard. Can you talk to us about why those exist? Um, before we began this podcast, I recommended a book that you read called Trillions. Yep. Um, quite ironically, Vanguard's history began with uh, with our founder, Jack Bogle, starting off with active funds. Mm. So active funds have always been near and dear to our heart. It's just that um, our view is uh, active management has definitely a role to play. Um, but 
not all active managers are equal. Um, mm. It requires really talented um, active managers with long track records in history. Um, what is not very well known around the world is Vanguard is one of the largest allocators of act- active equity in the world. We have roughly a trillion dollars in mm. active equity where we invest in, uh, we have our own active um, offerings where we they are um, factor-like and factor-based um, strategies like a value factor, like a minimum volatility and things like that. Um, but we also um, have what we call a sub-advised relationship where we pick managers like a Wellington or a Bailey Gifford and allocate monies to them. And the, and, and the reason why we do this is we have a, one of our longest standing, we call the teams called Oversight and Managers Search. There's about 30, or 30 people based in the US who do deep research on fund managers to try and pick some of these really long-standing mm. in investment managers. And, and we, we use a three, three-pronged approach called talent, cost, and patience. Hmm. Um, talent is we need people, we need fund managers who, who have the right philosophy, have the right approach, the right investment um, uh, processes in place to, that can stand um, the enduring test of time. Um, there's cost. Cost is obviously a key concern, unsurprisingly to Vanguard. We, <laughs> we, we think high-cost active um, has no place in a portfolio. And for us, we think um, cost has to be a key consideration. And, and by Vanguard entering into these sub-advised relationships, we're, we're able to use our scale to bring the value of these really high-quality active managers to our investors. Mm. Um, and patience. Um, un, unsurprisingly, patience is, is an important one because active managers will um, at times underperform for a variety of reasons. And um, you know, we, we have that sense of um, perspective with, um, with active managers. And um, again, the Global Investment Committee that I described earlier has um, a review process where they review these fund manager strategies, they go to our board. So again, it's a, it's a big part of our industry, but we are, again, very clear that not all active managers are the same. It takes a ton of time, effort, mm. and capital to find these managers. Um, we've built some really strong associations with um, some managers who've been with us for as long as Vanguard has been, which is almost 50 years. Um, so we, and you know, we've, um, we've benefited and most importantly, our, our investors have been able to benefit by being able to include some of these active strategies in their portfolios. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, so I was always aware of the factor-based, like the value strategies and all that. I wasn't actually aware of this sub-advisory committee, you called it. Um, and that was, that's a really interesting framework. Just those three principles of talent, cost, and patience. Yeah. Um, I feel like anyone that's listening to this is thinking about active management could use that framework just as a general high-level totally. framework. You know, does the person have talent or does the organization have talent? Do they keep the cost low? And yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, so here in Australia, another really important talking point, especially for the direct audience, but also for advisors, financial advisors who you spend a lot of your time speaking with nowadays, they are huge advocates, as are we, of the Vanguard diversified funds. So people can buy these on exchange. A common one would be like VDBA is the ticker symbol here in Australia. Uh, VDHG is another one. Um, and these, uh, in effect, I might describe them as like a ready-made core portfolio for people where you can go in, the, the parameters are set this much in risk assets or growth assets and this much in defensive assets. I've got a very, more of a targeted question is, um, why were they made up of managed funds? So inside of these ETFs that we can buy on exchange, there's actually managed funds inside them. Why were they managed funds and not ETFs inside of them? Do you want me to touch on why we built diversified funds? Yeah, let's and, do that. And then come yeah. back to the managed funds. Sure. So Vanguard, again, going back to the highly principled comments, we have these principles for um, um, principles for investment success based on what we've seen work across our 50 million um, investor base. And it fundamentally comes down to four key sets of principles. One is goals, having some clear goals, discernible goals, measurable goals. Um, balance, which is having the right level of asset classes, which gives you give you the right balance of risk, 
risk and reward. Mm-hmm. Um, cost, unsurprisingly, cost is a key factor in your decision making, and and the and it's fundamentally based on the premise that the more you pay, the less of your money is working for you. And the last one being balance. So, which is as Jack Bogle, our founder, said, you know, staying the course. Mm. So the view there is, you know, we think all investors should have some discernible goals, be suitably diversified in the asset class, have a ironclad focus on cost, but most importantly, once you've defined these things, have that sense of perspective, long-term perspective, know why you've, we spoke about the marathon example, yeah. so have that sense of perspective at kilometer 34, 35, especially when things go down. Um, so uh, all of our products and, uh, and our portfolio are constructed using these foundational principles. So we, in the late 90s, um, constructed these products, which we call diversified funds, which is essentially a representation of these four principles in the one fund. So we constructed them using managed funds because we didn't have ETFs until 2009. Right. So we started out with them. They've been incredibly popular with um, with retail investors as well as advisors. Um, and in 2009, um, and with the advent of ETFs, we didn't have these diversified portfolios. And in 2017, we launched ETF versions of these diversified funds, the four products, which is conservative, balanced, growth, and high growth. And as you said, the difference is the proportion of growth assets and defensive assets in, the, in each of these portfolios. So when we launched them, we launched them um, as an underlying portfolio of managed funds because um, that's what we had. Yeah. We, we're not thinking about, um, we still think that's, an, that's a phenomenal strategy, mm. but most importantly, it offers investors and advisors ease of access into these all-in-one portfolios that have done really well for, for, for all the time that they've existed. Um, we're now thinking about, um, we, we launched them using underlying managed funds because we had those, those managed funds had substantial scale as they continue to do. They're generally in net inflow territory, which yep. means more money is coming into these funds than out. So investors benefit from a taxation standpoint. But we feel now there is the opportunity for us to perhaps look at investing in the underlying ETF share classes of these underlying products. Again, it's more a, um, an evolution of what we've done. It might give people some tax advantage around the edges, mm. but um, you know, people are not missing out by um, having those investments into the underlying managed funds because these are fully index-based, they're highly diversified, and, um, and they've stood the test of time. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I didn't know that, um, that that was a consideration of what you're doing because that is one of the concerns that people have is like the tax, not just now, but in 20 years, right? Um, but having the ETF vehicles inside the other ETFs um, may give them more flexibility in other ways in time and who knows what the future holds for them. So that's really interesting. Okay, so this is a gen- first. There is a general tendency that everybody fo- overly focuses on the perceived tax advantages. We do think over time there will be, but I don't think people are massively missing out because, again, they invested in really liquid, really low-cost, diversified strategies with very little portfolio turnover. Yeah. Uh, even with diversified funds, I think it's it's not like you're turning over the portfolio every week. There are big asset allocation changes that are made, f- you know, not as not as um, frequently as one might mm-hmm. expect. So you are inherently getting the tax advantage through your investment strategy. Um, but you know, structural tax advantage is something you know we, we're thinking about. But over time, we might reflect that in um, in ETFs. It's interesting. Um, people, I've talked about this quite a bit on the show before. Is the importance of turnover in a portfolio? So things coming in and out of the portfolio, um, and how that can lead to tax consequences. And Vanguard, I think, I could be wrong, so if anyone else wants to correct me on this, but I think Vanguard is the only one that publishes turnover, or at least you guys did for a while publicly, um, which is really important because people then can assess how frequently that portfolio is shifting around, which causes crystallizes tax, right? Um, whereas if you compare it to active fund managers, Many instances, they're turning over the portfolio 
know, 100% or every year, the portfolio is being washed around. Or if you're a hedge fund, it could be 300, 400%. Yeah. Again, somebody's paying the tax bill at the end. Yeah. And, uh, and you can't reflect that in the performance reporting. No. Because everyone's tax profile is different. Everyone's tax marginal tax rate is different. Absolutely. So you don't know until you pay the accountant yep. or the accountant says, here's the bill. Um, and that's such an important consideration. And it comes back to what you said early on, if we thread that back through, about you said, I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, the five to one ratio of active versus passive investment in terms of the trading volume. But um, that's a, something that a lot of people don't talk about because they don't get into the nitty gritty. But as your balance gets bigger, things like, I mentioned securities lending before, lowering the effective cost to people, things like lower turnover play a huge role. Totally. And they're kind of silent in the background, which is why I'm glad to talk about it. So, Balaji, we we often talk about on the show or in our other channels, we say that investing in an ETF or an index fund is is kind of like a box of favorites. The ad is like the, the chocolates when you don't know what to take to a party, you take a box of favorites. And inside of that, you'll have some dairy milk, you'll have some cherry ripe, some Turkish delight, you'll have all the different variations, right? So you get a bit of everything. Now, some people think that wouldn't it be good if there was an, a box of favorites, but I could just get rid of the Turkish delight, or in my case, it'd be get rid of the boost because I just do not like boosts. So I'd have more Turkish delight and less boost in my portfolio, right? And this gives rise to this thing called in, direct indexing, which is this idea that you can cr- create your own index, right? You can, instead of taking the ASX 300, the box of favorites, you can just take the bits of it that you want. You can say, I don't want that. I don't want this. I want this. And then it spits out a portfolio. Now, this is a growing trend overseas. Um, if I'm not mistaken, hundreds of billions of dollars is invested this way already overseas. And this kind of fosters this new conversation around what's the future of index investing? What's the future of ETS this is, as an adjunct to that? How do you think about this? So Vanguard globally acquired this firm called Just Invest in the US, All right. um, which which was a direct indexing partner. Um, we think direct indexing is, uh, and, and you know, at the time, direct indexing was touted as not for everyone, but for it was part of our financial advisor service business, servicing high net or ultra high net worth clients. You know. More money, more income, yep. people are more tax conscious. Um, we've thought about it. We've considered you know, whether just in, um, direct indexing would work in Australia. And essentially, direct, in, um, direct indexing proposition to market is, hey, rather than invest in a, in a fund or an ETF, you get access to all of the underlying um, stocks. Say, if you're talking about an ASX 300, instead of investing in a fund that invests in 300s, you could just get a portfolio that invests in 300 stocks. Yeah. Um, and then there's, because it's very customized, you can, you have the ability to try and replace the boost. Yeah. I'll call it the bounty. Yeah, bounty. Um, bounty <laughs> boost. Um, you, you can, you can take away certain stocks and replace them with others. And this becomes a, a factor when people are considering things like ESG. Mm. I remember when I used to work in, um, in a bank once, this, very um, wealthy entrepreneur didn't want to invest in a certain bank stock because when he started out the business, the bank lend, didn't lend him money for whatever your reasons <laughs> and rationale. Yeah. Um, you know, it gives you the opportunity to change that, and it gives you some tax um, tax advantages in terms of being ha- being able to you know sell off a portion of stocks um, before. Something else, um, and it's a it's a it's a phenomenon called tax loss harvesting. Um, we think, um, for the most part, because of the way funds and ETFs work, you are inherently getting a substantial tax advantage because, again, driven by the investment strategy. In Australia, tax loss harvesting is a, a, I'm not I'm not going to say it's illegal, but it's I don't think we can go out and tout it as a big advantage. And I'm sure someone will correct me. On that, we feel indexing and ETFs um, have enough benefits that for the most part, even if you're a very high net worth client, um, you will continue to benefit from just investing in a standard fund and ETF. So we have no plans to launch that here. But in the US, again, we have a big scale there. And for some very high, ultra high net worth investors, they value the benefits that in that mm. they 
perceive they're getting from direct indexing. So for them, we've made that functionality available. We, we again, in Australia, we, we have no plans to bring that to market here. Uh, I, we get a lot of questions on this, and that's a really uh, interesting answer, so thank you. My take on it is that for the vast majority of people, you, it's it, it would be maybe a nice to have, but not essential. And I feel like it would be, I, the way I like it, it's kind of like a if you go to the supermarket and you pick up a bottle of Coke, okay, let, put health issues aside, pick up a bottle of Coke, but let's say you want 1% less sugar. Coca-Cola is never going to create that because I'll just say that's close enough. You know, you've got, yep. we'll give you Coke Zero or you can have this one, but you don't need 1% less. But then the next person comes along and says, I want 1% more. And it's kind of like, where do you draw the line? Like close enough is good enough or at least overwhelmingly good enough? Yeah, and and, and the important thing to remember is the more, and just because you can customize and when if people just get, add more and more customization to the portfolio, suddenly it starts to deviate from the core investment strategy. So if you're taking mm. an Oz you know, 300 strategy or an S&P 500 and you're adding a ton of customization, at some point it's going to start behaving very differently to mm. what you intended for your investment exposure to be. So that's that's another topic that um, we think investors should be wary of. And uh, everybody loves the notion of having something that is very specifically designed for them, but to the extent it doesn't give you substantive advantage mm. uh, in other actual or perceived value, I think funds and ETFs um, are a fantastic way to continue to stay invested. Mm. Here in Australia, we saw the, the launch of Vanguard uh, Personal Investor. So a way for people, instead of going through a third-party brokerage platform, they can come directly to Vanguard. Of course, this happened in the past as well. If I'm not mistaken, you could get a managed fund, you could fill in the form and send it back to Vanguard and presto, you're an investor as well. But the per Personal Investor Platform effectively um, made it available to everyone who wanted a digital experience. Why did Vanguard choose to move, I would say, further downstream to capture that? Like, Why was that important? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's very close to my heart. I ran that part of the mm. business before. Um, and a retail business is, uh, is very near and dear to, to Vanguard's core strategy as well as my, um, hmm. my, my, my heart and, and you know, as well as my teams. So from what is less well known is Vanguard's been offering retail funds since the late 90s when mm. we launched our diversified strategies. So we would have people come in and literally come to our reception and find ways to get their money to us. We didn't really have a fantastic digital onboarding program. It was largely served reactively by our client services and our contact center team. So we wanted to do two things. One is we were, we, you know, that grew to a, a big investor base of about 30,000 investors. Um, with reasonable assets under management. Um, so we wanted to offer a solution that helped these investors get a great experience with us and also give them access to all sorts of everything that Vanguard has to offer, managed funds, ETFs, and other things. We also firmed up our strategy that Vanguard globally wanted to be there for retail and financial advisors. These are the only two segments that are core to our strategy. Um, in, in Australia, so so retail investors, retail direct, and financial advisors, philosophically aligned financial advisors who subscribe to the way Vanguard thinks from a long-term um, mm. working sense. So we built Vanguard Personal Investor to try and make investing less daunting to investors, whether you're an existing investor or a new investor. We also wanted to build in mechanisms to create better investors. It's not just a a place to invest it, we we wanted it to become a way to invest. We wanted people to be able to go and tell their friends and family, hey, just go to Vanguard. It's a trusted brand. Um, mm. Their products are low cost, diversified, and it gives you mechanisms. We, we very carefully built in mechanisms so that we took out the emotional aspects of what might induce people to react emotionally to markets, like an up arrow and a down arrow when markets go up or down. We often thought that elicited emotional re responses from investors. Mm. Um, so we just took that away and we created small pieces of functionality with things like auto invest, where you're just essentially staying true mm. to a planned 
um, investment and reinvestment strategy. We launched a mobile app again, which is very much in tune with um, understanding and educating investors on what's happening and uh, you know on how they should be thinking about investing. So from our standpoint, we we built that to a serve our existing investors and also to build a new brand of investors to the Vanguard way of investing. So the platform offers a digital interface that gives you access to Vanguard funds, Vanguard ETFs, and there's no brokerage and a cash account. And we also have the top 300 Australian shares because some people, some of our clients said, hey, I, I just want to be able to invest a portion of my wealth in some shares. So the platform brings together all of these things. Mm. And we recently launched superannuation. I was going to say that. And, next, yeah. and what having this digital infrastructure enables us to do is create an experience where an investor, whether they have the super and non-super, are able to just have it all in the one place and we, we are able to provide, you know, reporting on both the super and the non-super fronts. Mm. How, so that was at the time, that wasn't launched that long ago, the, the Vanguard super strategy. And that was like, it sent shivers down the spine of some of the providers in the industry because it, they thought, well, here comes Vanguard, like the brand that everyone trusts, um, entering this really important industry. Broadly, like how was that received and how is the uptake in those types of things? Yeah, it, it, it really played to our strengths again, um, we 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 also in the Royal Commission. Um, that's super high cost, poor performance, and in many ways played to Vanguard's core mission. So um, our view has always been low cost investing, um, standing the test of time. Um, you don't need undue complexity um, for any sort of investment, but more importantly for your retirement based investment, which is going to be a big chunk of your portfolio. So from our standpoint, um, we wanted to. Um, be there and offer a an alternative to retail investors and advisors who want to come to Vanguard and invest their superannuation. Vanguard's already the underlying building block in a lot of super portfolios, and this is this for us is just a different way to to be there as a consolidated superannuation offering and provide a very meaningful retirement solution. So mm-hmm. we launched that late um, late last year. Um, it's grown. It's 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 grown in in line with where we thought it was going to be. Um, we have an accumulation offering, and then we are very soon, maybe later this year, we'll be launching uh, a pension um, offering for that um, for our super fund. And um, for us, it's um, it's really about providing a really meaningful whole of wealth solution to both retail investors and financial advisors. Um, and again, its retirement is. For most people, the biggest chunk of their investment portfolio, and we want to be there and um, you know and help them be better investors, and importantly, be able to retire mm. in the manner in which they intended to. I'm curious to double click on this thing you said before about features that might you might have designed differently than traditionally we see. So up and down arrows is one of those things. I often t- I often think that I actually sought out uh, or seek out, sorry, um, platforms or investing tools that automatically augment people's behavior to the long term. So if you show a share price chart, it's a 10-year share price chart rather than a one-day share price chart. Or when you first log in, is it red or green or is it mm. just a neutral color? These are things that like we ha- are built to respond to our impulses and vice versa, right? Were there any are there any other things that you took as an opportunity to reinforce that type of behavior? Is there anything else? Yeah, even even the performance tables. Usually, performance tables uh, represent performance as a one month, three month, six month, and I think we we pivoted that into providing a longer term perspective because it's it's a really strange phenomenon. Um, even if you're a highly professional investor, when you see these investment returns in the short term. Mm. do really well or do really badly, it it somehow elicits behavior. We're all human, so it, it just creates these emotional reactions. So we wanted to just preempt that and, you know, just do everything we can to try and remove some of these emotional biases. So performance tables were one. The up and arrow, down arrow um, was a was another feature, and we sometimes have some clients come in and say, "Hey, can I really want to know how my portfolio did yesterday?" 
And, you know, there's a very good reason why we don't have it. And um, But people do call us and sometimes want that perspective. And we see that um, escalate, particularly with our newer investors, yeah. um, when markets tank um, or, or, you know, people tend to feel a sense of panic. And we want to try and solve for that through educating investors, reminding them of the long-term perspective and to make sure that our digital experience is essentially bringing all those things to life for them mm. um, in a very seamless way. Yeah, we had a uh, behavioral economist, I guess is his title, um, behavioral finance uh, speaker, Simon Russell, on the show not too long ago. And he actually did that real life test where you put two sets of financial uh, performance from a fund manager side by side or a super fund. And he actually did the test where you have exactly the same fund with exactly the same returns but their performance table is switched mm. and the impact that that has on people. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's remarkable how we is just, even smart people just in, instinctively go to the one that's, you know, performed to the best on the left-hand side or the one av- away from the one that's performed the worst on the left-hand side because we le- read left to right. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's I, I don't know whether it's in Australia or in the US, but Morningstar published a, a report once. I don't know when, I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but they had this league of fund manager performance of active managers and there was one manager who was number one in in a given year. Um, it was mm. a list of about 400 managers and maybe in the next year that manager fell down to 387. So <laughs> it's just that when, and invariably people think someone who's performed in one year is going to continue to do that. Whether it's a fund manager or whether it's any particular asset, asset class, you know, things change all the time. That is why our, our approach is always, hey, be diversified. We have this patchwork quilt chart that we call it, mm-hmm. which it showcases how every asset class is performed. And you see no one asset class continues to perform and be the top performer in every one asset class. But if you just overlay that with the diversified strategy, you, you get to see that sense of, hey, it's, it's somewhat somewhere in the middle and somewhat you know, sometimes up, mm. sometimes slightly lower, but it's generally keeping you where you need to be. And it's a, it's quite a powerful chart. And we're thinking of ways and means by which we can bring that to life in a digital sense for our investors. Mm. I've got maybe one more question for you, Balaji, which is just, uh, it's actually quite a pointed one, which is gold as an asset class, and you might have a very simple answer to this, and I think you do. Gold as an asset class has been a huge part of people's core portfolios for decades, maybe some people could say centuries, right? Why doesn't Vanguard offer a gold-style ETF? comes down to our investing um, product design principles that I described earlier. It doesn't meet the core test for us of our enduring investment merit because unlike a share or a, or a building or property of some kind mm. it generates an income or a stock you can ascribe a value to a stock or with a building, it's producing some income. Or if you own a farmland, it produces, it's doing something. Gold doesn't produce anything. So from that standpoint, mm. essentially the future price of gold is is driven by supply and, and demand. And essentially in the absence of a meaningful valuation, you are you are speculating on a future price. I'm not and I'm not um, trying to be judgmental of those who invest in gold. Mm, I'm sure. only talking about why we don't build an offering. It's not just gold, any commodity. We 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 don't have a, a product offering or even Bitcoin. And this is the reason why we didn't do it because it doesn't meet the core test of it can't be valued and it can't be, it, we, we, we can't satisfy ourselves that it can pro, pro, produce an enduring investment return over time. And for that reason, we don't do gold or any commodity or Bitcoin. And this is a question that keeps coming up, particularly in 2021 when mm. Bitcoin was going up. We, we had people call up and say, hey, where's your Bitcoin button? And or oh, where's your Bitcoin ETF? And it's just not something we would do. Again, it comes down to our principle, just because investors ask for it. We don't think it's um, it's um, the right offering for investors, but uh, you know that's yeah, that's why we haven't built it. That's fair enough. Um, you have your principles and you stand to them, and absolutely, it's a fantastic thing, and that's what has built the brand, as we alluded to earlier on. Um, there'll be full links in the show notes for anyone that wants to um, get in contact with the Vanguard team, as well as see all the list of funds that we've referenced. That's all available in the show notes. I'll put a link to that book, Trillions, um, 
sounds like a fascinating read. Um, if it comes from you, I'll probably have to read it now. So <laughs> I do appreciate that, mate. And um, also, um, wish the other half very good luck with this 100-kilometer run. Uh, that's a that's not an easy thing to do, I'm sure. So we'll do. I'm I'm going to be doing a portion of it, but uh, oh. yeah, I think she's going to scoot past me, and I and yeah, I'll struggle to be even in the vicinity of her. So. <laughs> Maybe just meet her at the finish line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Gee, this has been heaps of fun, mate. I, I really do appreciate it. No, thank you. It's been great to chat. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.